This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 168, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the unlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Keith Gross, head of UK at Plaid, or Plaid, Plaid in America, Plaid in the UK, it's spelt the same way, P-L-A-I-D, to discuss the global progress of open banking and its ever-widening extension into more and more fields, the so-called open investment, and even apparently open payments, whatever that means, maybe we'll find out later. So, glossing over the irony of everything in tech being open this way and that, whilst after last episode's brief sojourn in the rational country of Norway, which is an open world, uh, in London once again we look like everything is being closed down. Dodgy data this time, not dodgy dossiers. So anyway, let's put all that jazz to one side for a change and let's dive into the world of ever more exciting open FS in everything. Plenty to talk about, so without further ado, let's get on with the show. Good morning, Keith. Thank you for joining me today. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me. We were talking about what to kick off the show with a little bit of, um, I was about to say something more interesting in fintech, but there is nothing more interesting in fintech. Something <laughs> that's right. not quite as interesting in fintech, but it'll, it'll do before uh, as a warm-up act for the sort of the, the main band to come on stage. And we were both reflecting that it was November the 3rd and something was supposed to be happening on November the 3rd, but I couldn't, remi- I couldn't remember it actually. It may, may come back to me later. Yeah, same here. I think, I think I've blocked it out, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll read the newspapers tomorrow. So uh, apologies for that, listeners. Um, no doubt by the time this comes out later in November, you, you, will, uh, you will actually know what it was on, that we forgot on November the 3rd. So uh, talking about more exciting things, and as always, I've professionally done my research, but I'm a little bit confused in that um, apart from the, the excitement of APIs and, and fintech, you spent some time diving in the coral wreaths of, of Ethiopia, which I found a bit confusing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if you think about it, this, this is taking me back now to an era when you could actually get on a plane and travel somewhere. Wow, that's so retro, I man, know, you know? <laughs> I know, it's a throwback. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was lucky enough to spend my summers in university doing a bunch of different projects, one of which I spent a summer in Ethiopia working in an orphanage in Addis Ababa and got to, got to live the Ethiopian life for a summer. And then another summer I spent doing coral reef research, conservation research in Fiji, which really inspired my love of diving. But now this, this is just making me sad to think back on because those were such wonderful trips and I've been stuck in my flat in London for eight months now. So, you know, it's a, it's a different world. It's a different world these days. Yes, yes. And, and I was being a, a little bit sarcastic, but <laughs> actually I realized that once again, I've hoist myself with my own petard because Ethiopia may actually, unbeknownst to me, have coral reefs, does it? Not to my knowledge, as far as I know. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, there we go. Look, you see, you've wasted your opportunity. Your life was wasted from the start. You could have combined the two interests and been the first person to discover coral reefs off Ethiopia. Yeah, exactly. Discover the, the land-dwelling fish uh, in the deserts there. It'd be great. <laughs> Funny enough, actually, this is a complete coincidence. I didn't do any research, but uh, I was actually hearing, and I think it was a podcast or a YouTube recently, about the sort of fascinating, is it the, uh, it's not the Coptic church, whatever, the, the fascinating branch of the... Um, uh, of the church, the, the Christian church in, in Ethiopia, which seemed a really interesting thing, actually. It seems much more interesting than sort of the, the local church nearby. Yeah, well, people forget what an ancient country it is there. I went to Lalibela that summer where they have carved cathedrals down into the cliffside from 
you know, thousands of years before now. And so it's just crazy how ancient that country is and the civilization there. It's really, it's really interesting. Highly recommend people go visit if you get a chance. It's off the beaten path, but it's, it's a fantastic country. Yes. One of the um, borough markets got a bit of an upgrade for the sort of the food lunch, which again is a sort of retro thing because when I used to put shoes on to do my London FinTech podcast while I'm doing them at home in my socks, I would go into London and um, generally I'd, get, I'd grab a bite to eat in Borough Market on the way back. And uh, the, the Ethiopian food stand and the Ethiopian guys and lady who made the food, they were absolutely brilliant. I just loved their Sega Tibbs. But unfortunately, when it upgraded, no doubt it increased the rents and, that, and they all disappeared. So I've been missing my Ethiopian food for some time. Well, I know where you can go get it. So, uh, yeah, just hop a quick flight. <laughs> Oh, I see. Okay, right. Yes, there's a bit of a problem with that, which I think they've just banned, banned airplanes in the New World Order or something like that. But anyway, I shall buy an Ethiopian uh, cookbook, although it won't be the same. So anyway, before we reduce our guest to tears, maybe we should um, move rapidly on from the days when you were, went out and about to the, your far more exciting days now where you, you stay at home and you're, you're fascinated with uh, the world of tech and, and your computer. And, and you, like me, stare at your computer every day, day in, day out, Monday to Friday, maybe sometimes at the weekend and week in, week out, which is really far superior to going around the world of Boohoo. So what <laughs> led you from Ethiopia and coral reefs, not Ethiopian coral reefs, to being head of the UK at Plaid Played, depending on whether you're American or British, I guess? Yeah, I, I guess it's it's sort of an interesting story that that most people have of your interests changing over time. I don't think any little kids, you know, go to school when they're five years old and say, "I want to be a, a fintech executive when I grow up." <laughs> but uh, I, I actually, when I entered university, I, I was very interested in becoming a mathematics professor, uh, and quickly realized that that was not the career path for me. But I was really interested in numbers and in tech. And so after uni, I went out to Silicon Valley. I worked in consulting for a few years and then got a job as an internal, essentially management consultant at Google, where you essentially operated as a SWAT product manager who gets dropped into new projects that don't have a team yet. And one of the things I got to work on was Google Wallet and helping Google Wallet internationalize all over the world and accept new forms of payment. And it just really made me realize how much is broken under the scenes in fintech. And that just became my passion. And so I spent some more time at Google working on their Pixel phones and the Google Home speakers, but the whole time was thinking about, okay, where do I go in fintech? Where can I have the biggest impact? And then I got to meet Plaid, which I frankly hadn't heard of until a few years ago. And then when I realized where they play in the ecosystem and how they've helped support and develop all the applications that I found so exciting to use at the time and that they were looking to expand to Europe and wanted someone to help lead that expansion, I was all in and joined to help lead the expansion out here. And then I came to London. I opened an office here in London and an office in Amsterdam. And I've been scaling the business in Europe ever since. And it's been, it's been a ride. Yes. And I probably should have said in my introductions, which are getting perhaps too brief, that for those people who don't know Plaid Played, which many may not, because you're one of these uh, amazingly successful back-end fintechs who have really sort of stolen the, the limelight, actually, in terms of flogging themselves for, for lots of money. Off the top of my head, was it $5.7 billion that the Visa paid for you guys or something? Deal hasn't closed yet, but yeah, it was something oh, like it's that. it's ongoing. It's ongoing, yes. Anyway, quite a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to go into personal details, but I did hear that 0.7 of the billion was just for you, Keith. Actually, so. <laughs> I, I wish, I wish. So the back-end companies, and you do API stuff, and we'll come on to that, and open banking, and you, and you make it possible for people. This is a sector that's really done very well. We've had a few such on the show this year. So when you were Google Walleting, roughly what year was that, that in terms of the development of all this sort of internationally stuff? Oh, man, what year was that? 2014? 
2014, I want to say, 2013 or 2014, yeah. It's changed names three or four times over the years as well. So you have to try and dig back to what iteration it was in. But yeah, I think one of the things I realized there, which is where Plaid can come in essentially is, and all these B2B fintechs, is you need so many tools and infrastructure pieces to build a successful consumer-facing fintech. And so there are all these great companies, uh, just like us, who are helping build the tools that you need to build a business. And I think most people probably haven't heard of them, but they're incredibly important parts of the fintech ecosystem. Absolutely. They're the kind of somewhere between the foundations and the plumbing and the water and the electricity in a building. You know, every building needs that kind of stuff. Most people don't know who installed the electricity, the plumbing, all the internet and all that kind of jazz, but they use it every day without knowing that. And in a building, a metaphor, there are the sort of the services department that sort of runs all that. And those people know who's essential to do, I don't know, your internet or your electricity or your gas and and all that kind of jazz. So it is the case that companies such as yours and one or two others we've had on this year are super, super essential to a limited number of people in in fintech, let alone the, the wider FS community and then outside your unsung heroes. So maybe just give us a little bit, because I didn't injure you very much about Plaid. Then I'll say other than the fact you've sold for several billion just means you're very successful. It doesn't particularly say what you do. And, you know, open banking, well, everyone's heard those words and they've been used in about a billion articles. So that's kind of non-differentiating. So we'll pick up Plaid later in the, in the show at the end. But uh, do you want to just give the sort of listeners, uh, you know, a few minutes on, on Plaid and, you, you know, USPs and, and what you're at and all that kind of stuff? Because then that will help, I think, contextualise your authority, not in mathematics, although we should do one on maths just for a change sometime. <laughs> but for the main course topic, the, uh, the global open banking and expansion is different verticals. Yeah, sure. So so Plaid is an open banking platform, which means we have a suite of APIs that you can use to access open banking. But what that means to most people is we're the easiest way to connect your bank account to an application. And so that can mean a lot of different things, but I think that's the simplest way to think about it. We were started in 2013 in the US, and actually our founders have been trying to build their own budgeting application. And they found out one, that was really hard, and maybe that wasn't what they wanted to do. But two, one of the hardest parts was just being able to cover all the different banks in the US and let people connect their bank accounts, actually pull in transactions and do budgeting. And over time, other companies would come to them and say, look, your app is crap, but your infrastructure is amazing. Can we just license what you've built here? And Plaid pivoted and became the B2B company that it is today. And now we're the largest open banking provider in the US. We cover Canada, the UK, Netherlands, France, and Spain with more to come. So we're the only transatlantic open banking provider. And we support more than 3,000 applications and 80% of the largest fintechs. So the likes of uh, Coinbase and Robinhood and others that you've probably heard of are built on Plaid's infrastructure. Excellent. Well, that's a very good uh, overview. It sounds like you've thought about that and given it before <laughs> once or twice. It's very clear. I wish I was so professional. I wish I could do sort of things like that on this show, actually. It might, <laughs> might get more of an audience. So diving into the main course then, unless you've just joined the World of Fintech or the London Fund tech podcast recently or just started reading articles about it everybody by now will be um, a little bit sort of bored slash tired unless they're working very close to these cool faces about open banking we've had a few shows on it in the past and uh, in in the way of many of these things some changes announced whether it's psd2 open banking europe ec uk blah 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 we all know about it and then a million journalists write articles saying my god this is going to change everything and they sort of hype it through the roof and then a year later they go my god this changed next to not a lot of at all it's you know so it goes from being sort of heaven to sort of totally pointless limbo hell um and then people sort of start crawling out of the woodwork and saying well actually 
there were the, the various B2B cases where we had a B2B open banking on, uh, where for SMEs, it's really useful. You can, you know, you can, because they turn it into something that's actually sort of functionality, which is like, oh, you can just sort of send something out, to, you know, and your invoice automatically bills the client when they click on a, a link or, or stuff like that, which is functionality for businessmen's and businesswomen's and business Perkins lives that actually makes their business life better rather than, oh yes, we've just invented TCP IP protocol. Oh, that's nice, but but so what? Oh, well, you can, you know, you can do WhatsApp and send emails. Oh, that's all right. So we've had this whole sort of cycle. Of course, I've remained massively enthusiastic about open banking and haven't got the slightest bit to sort of uh, uh, of boredom about it. <laughs> um, but it is one of these things that I think a bit like TCP IP does start to retreat into the background once you got over the sort of, should we call it journalistic hype cycle and the regulatory cycle and all that kind of stuff. It starts to become something which if you've got a fintech or you're building a fintech, you need your CTO and your backend devs to know it inside out and backwards but it just starts to be become something which like electricity is used in your building and you assume the lights come on and all that so that's the background so i don't think we need to explain it much more from a from a sort of consumery listenery perspective but I think, and this is the interest in, in talking to you guys and, and talking to you, Keith, which is that different countries have gone at different paces. They've done it slightly differently. The EU is like this, the UK is like that. I'm not that aware with what the US has done. Maybe it's sort of, you can send your check a bit faster in the post because I keep, keep hearing that's how US banking operates. So we, we've got this geographic spread, at a very uneven pace. So maybe you can just lay out the land of the geographic space and, and how they're approaching it differently and, and how on earth a company like you knits together all these different regimes going at different speeds so that somebody like me and I've talk, talked about in this new totalitarian world I'm going to have to track and trace everybody that listens to the show and next thing you know I'm going to have to be charging them and, and so I'm going to suddenly have all these problems I'm going to have to hire somebody because I can't work out the problem myself and then for the um, uh, for the for the exciting um, icing and cherry on the top we'll have these sort of well, open banking, people are getting too ambitious. And before we know it, it's open, open football and, and open everything. Um, but we'll leave, leave that one second. So, so firstly, the, the geographic expansion, let's just bring everybody back up to speed on where each of the major reasons, regions are and comparatively. Yeah, sure. So, so I think it's probably helpful to give just a, a 10 second definition. Open banking is a movement, which is a sort of the thing that ties together all these global ideas, is the basic premise of consumers' financial data and financial access to their bank account should be something they're allowed to connect to other applications and services. At a base level, that's what it is. Taking your bank account in your traditional bank and being able to connect it to other services. And as you said, every country all over the world has been doing this differently, approaching it differently, legislating it differently, and is at different stages of that journey. So I guess I'll start with where I am today in the UK. So open banking here, you would think of it as a capitalized, capital O, capital B, and it came about as part of PSD2, right? So the second payment services directive. But then what the UK did was really interesting, where they had the CMA create an order requiring the CMA nine banks, the largest banks, to implement this. And they created a standards body called the OBIE, Open Banking Implementation Entity, with Imram as the trustee, and said, you're in charge of making sure that this standard is implemented with all the largest banks. And that honestly has put the UK miles ahead of the rest of Europe in implementing PSC2. They're unique in that setup, right? And just pressing pause on that. So for those people who don't know, the CMA is the Competition and Markets Authority yes. uh, over here, which is responsible for, well, I guess it's Competition and Markets under the authority. <laughs> Imram Gulawashami, as you say, has been heading it. 
And I think to choose a metaphor which will bring tears to my eyes because uh, tomorrow will be the last day for this one. It would be like, for example, going to all owners of pubs and introducing a standard size of pint and half pint glass and standard measures for gin and wine and all that kind of stuff and making sure that all pubs are actually up to that standard, that you don't go into a pub and get 80% less in one pub than another. And in terms of how regulation can work well, I tend to emphasise how it works badly, it can work well when it sets a standard, when it, I don't know, for the sake of argument, it's, a, it's the kind of statist equivalent of creating VHS videotapes. You know, that's the standard. OK, you can make your video on whatever. On, you can make a video on Ethiopian coral reefs. Just do it in this format. And that actually makes your life easier and increases your reach and all that kind of stuff. So, so the UK ha, ha, has done that well uh, and then it's implemented it. Good. Right. That, oh, I think we can finish that point. <laughs> we win. <laughs> for a change, for a change. And then other less enlightened countries, although I, I have to cross my fingers when I say that, given that we're benighted these days, but never mind. So then the other areas. Yeah. So, so then I guess let's move into continental Europe. So again, PSD2 applied to all of the EEA. So every European country is going through implementing PSD2 into local law. The difference there is that many of them didn't create a standards body, or if a standards body was created, it wasn't mandated or didn't have teeth from a regulator, it was created as sort of a separate third party. And what that's led to is it's just taking a lot longer for banks to implement the API specs. There's also three or four of them that have promulgated throughout Europe. So there's STEC group, there's Berlin group, there's others that are using the UK open banking spec, and they're all slightly different in terms of what they offer and how they're structured. And within each country, the level of development in terms of what banks are actually exposing these APIs at scale, what's the level of reliability is again, completely different market by market. And so what a player like ourselves, like Plaid does is we come in and we abstract away all of that complexity. We go one-on-one and deal with the developer groups at all the banks, integrate them, standardize them, and then through a single API, support all the countries and all the banks in the countries where we are. So if you're a FinTech developer who wants to support users in France, UK, Spain, Canada, you only have to do one integration and you leave all the worry about figuring out the mess that can be open banking to an open banking platform. And then if you shift across the Atlantic, the real big difference in terms of how the US has approached this is they've just taken a market-led approach. So they've only recently announced that there may be open banking legislation coming down the pipeline. So the, the OCC, which is led by Brian Brooks now, has put out a paper asking for consultation about open banking. But up until now, open banking is market-led, which has meant that fintechs like Plaid have created it in the US But also you have to work one-on-one with banks to make sure you work out deals or get access to their APIs or tell them where you think they're missing a a key piece of structured data. And so it very much is a bank-by-bank, painful, building a network type of process, but then adds incredible value to the fintechs that are using us once they actually have integrated because they don't have to go do that themselves, right? There are more than 12,000 banks in the US. If you are trying to build a fintech app, you do not want to go talk to 12,000 banks. Right. And hearing you talk about Europe first, it reminds me of the, a couple of episodes ago with uh, Signicat, who are doing digital identity across Europe. And John Eric outlined how identity has been handled, identity verification, very differently in a number of countries. And again, it's always impressive how the free market creates solutions to whatever problems arise, which is that, again, it's a pain in the arse if I want to try and verify the identity of everyone across Europe who's listening to the podcast. But I can choose a company, a back-end company, a B2B that sits between me 
and all that kind of jazz. And so you're doing, you're doing the same thing. And as you say, in the US, 12,000 banks would take quite a long time to connect to. So what about the other parts of the Anglosphere, sort of Canada, Australia, New Zealand-y type places? Yeah, again, they're all approaching it. So Canada is at a similar stage, I would say, to the US, where they're considering legislation, but nothing has been put into place yet. In Australia, actually, they're taking a really interesting approach where they're almost jumping straight from open banking to open finance, which I know we're going to get to. And the way they're doing that is they've started out creating a consumer consumer data right and then building legislation off of that. So they basically applied a principle in Australia and said every consumer has a right to all of their financial data. And what that does is it opens up the world of open banking from just your current account or, or in the U.S. your checking account to investment accounts, your utility data, your mortgage rates, and all of that will be covered under the implementation of open banking in Australia. It's starting to take off in similar stages in places like Singapore. And so I really do, it does feel like similar to how privacy is going through this big global wave, open banking behind the scenes is this big global wave of access. And I think to, to your point when you were introing all these questions, I don't think necessarily this is something that consumers need to care about or ever will care about. But if it's successful, it will be the type of thing like, internet access or having a smartphone in your pocket that will drastically change how you interact with financial services over time. And that's been the story of fintech when you think about it. Like in 2008, when the bank crisis happened, that's what led to the whole implementation of PST2 and the concept of open banking. But back then, you were still going into bank branches to do your, your banking. You definitely weren't banking on your mobile phone. Now you have people who during coronavirus have literally never walked into a bank branch. They've only accessed financial services from their smartphone. And I think this is the type of thing where you overestimate the changes on a year-by-year basis, but underestimate them on a decade basis. And I do think open banking is one of those movements where it will be something that just is taken as, oh, of course, this is a thing 10 years from now, but it took a lot of work and a lot of effort to make it successful. Yes, I see. So the motivations, as you say, were slightly to drain the moats around banks and a mentality, again, which is a much broader mentality across digital as, as a whole, which is that my data is my data. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not even sure I would say it as drain the moat, even though I think in some places that was part of the motivation. Actually, a lot of banks are going to see incredible value from open banking. The ones that lean into it, that are innovative, that build the best mobile experiences on top of that, there's real value there for banks as well. But those that have resisted it or viewed it only as compliance, I think have been feeling the pain from that approach as well. Yes, yes. I mean, maybe drain the moat is the wrong thing. Uh, widen the gate into the bank, because historically, if I'd banked with Lloyds all my life, Lloyds would have a lot of credit data on me, right. be able to assess me, give me a better price. But NatWest, for the sake of argument, uh, wouldn't be. But actually, it's my history of defaults or <laughs> of payments on time that matters. And I totally take the point, of course, that like most change in life, as an individual level or an institutional level, those who embrace the change proactively and seek not just to defend against the negative aspects of change, but actually to benefit from the positive, do best. And we had one right back in the day on open banking, where the point was made that you could adopt a defensive attitude, which is, how do I give away our information as slowly as possible right. in the most difficult right. way as possible is the most caricature on one end. But the other end is, hey, wow, we've got everybody else's data now. We'll have a billion times more data. Let's get out there and do it. And so there's a caricature, but there is actually a spectrum of, of behaviours. So one of my th thoughts behind this, and you know, we may not be there yet, or rather more particularly, you may not be there yet, which is that uh, if the mentality is, to, as it were, to sort of prize open the oyster shell, <laughs> not having drained the moat, but prizing the oyster shell of, uh, of banks and the information they have on their customers open and, and, and letting customers use that, because actually it's the customers that can use the data, even if the banks have got to do clever techie things in the, in the background. 
background. If that was one, and then the challenges of 2008 was another, I would suspect that, let's take the biggest obvious case, is that China wouldn't necessarily be starting from the same philosophical position. He didn't really have the sort of, you know, secondary mortgage crisis, whatever that thing was in 2008 in America and, you know, UK banks going bust and all that kind of jazz. It's got a rather a different, shall we say, modus operandi and also its attitude to citizens. And I'm not just talking about the politics of China. I'm talking about, oh, goodness knows, two, three thousand years of Confucianism, where the society is primary as opposed to, you know, goes the other end of the world and the US where the individual is primary, sort of a Christian kind of thing. But the Confucian thing is society. So... I would suspect that China hasn't exactly been sort of driving this forward and it's not yet such a big thing. Although they're, of course, super big in, in fintech as a whole and they're doing some amazing things. Yeah, like open banking as a, as a movement or a legislative movement, I would agree with you there. But in some ways they skipped straight there because they went over the whole traditional banking infrastructure setup, the credit cards, and moved straight to doing your finances on mobile devices. I mean, is it next week or this week that Ant Group is IPOing the largest IPO ever, right? That's how you pay for everything in China. Everyone has Alipay. If you think about just the amazing leaps frog that was in terms of technology and access, doing all your banking and accessing all your financial services on your smartphone, in some way that shows you how some of these technological advances in fintech can make a huge difference in a very short amount of time. So I would agree with you that they haven't taken the legislative point of view, but in some ways, they've already hit some of the outcomes that are going to take longer to come in other parts of the world, right? With that open banking can help provide where you can really access all your services through almost an embedded finance experience wherever you already are. Yes, it's a point well made. And uh, thank you for the correction, because uh, you're quite right that <laughs> the implicit error in my thinking was that... Uh, China would have had a consumer banking sector, should we say, in the 1960s when um, Chairman Mao was busy doing his, doing his thing. But, but as there wasn't a consumer banking thing, they didn't have the problem that we have over here, that the big UK banks or the big US banks think they own their customers. And in one sense, they do do, but this shift in mentality. So they haven't had to go through that. It's a bit like e-money. It's, it's probably still further ahead in, in, in these countries in Africa that have got M-Pace. That happened over there first, not in the US or, or not in the UK, for a whole bunch of other reasons. So it's really interesting comparing the dynamics across the world and how countries starting from completely different places actually all start marching in the same direction from very, very different starting points. So that's where it's all at. And then just very briefly, so we can get on to this sort of open everything. As they're all on different journeys in sort of roughly the same direction, just from a sort of simple high-level perspective of functionality. Let me say that I've got to connect to all the listeners in, in the podcast and I need to use identity, so I call Signicat and on Fido and I need to do sort of, you know, open banking to get the money, so I call you guys, you know, in a year's time. And you do all the techie stuff. Presumably there is very uneven functionality that I would get. So you say, okay, Mike, look, we'll connect you to 200 countries. And I'll say, they don't, they don't exist. And don't worry, we'll connect you to 200. We'll make some up. You've got the whole world, it's done. Oh, that's good. Right, well, and you say, well, what do you want to do? Well, I want to do A, B, C, D, and E. And then you, you, you give me a huge chart of which countries I can do A, which I can do B, which I can do C, which can I do E. Yeah, I mean, we, we should put you on the sales team, Mike. You understand this, <laughs> <laughs> like the back of your head. No, that's very true. As much as possible, we try and abstract that away to make sure we can offer the same functionality everywhere. But to your point, because there's different regulations or different levels of access in different countries, the level of data that you can have and the level of use cases then you can support are quite different. A great example here is in the US, Plaid supports investments and retirement account data, pension data. And here, there is no open APIs for pension data. So if you wanted to track your pension and your budgeting app, 
typically you're having to enter that manually. And there's been efforts around the pension dashboard to try and get that off the ground. There's discussion around this as part of open finance, but today that doesn't really exist, right? And so that's a use case, for example, where it's easy for us to support in the US. And I think it's still some time away from being supported in the UK, although this movement towards open finance is slowly nudging us there. And I think another great example of that is mortgages, right? Being able to pull in what's the rate I'm paying on my mortgage that data is typically very carefully held by banks, but in certain countries, you can pull that data and in others you can't. And that offers all sorts of different use cases around the ability to switch and price compare. And so I do think that functionality does differ by market, but because of that, what use cases are successful will differ by market. And you're starting to see all sorts of interesting things there. We're supporting a bunch of rental market companies here in London, for example, which is a really cool space where you can essentially prove with your current account, your financial health, and at times either take your rent passport with you to different locations, or you can actually get your deposit waived or covered by insurance because you prove you're healthy enough. And if you're a renter having to put down thousands of pounds in the deposit and potentially have those overlap of multiple properties if you're moving is a big financial strain that that can suddenly lift. I think that's a clear example where open banking is actually providing real money in the pocket for average users, which is great. Right. Okay. Well, you've nicely led us into the OpenFS, should we call it, in extremists that everything is open. And uh, I think you're the first person to, to whet my appetite because, uh, as I may have moaned on the show, I think last year, actually, I tried to do something with my pensions. You know, I got an old pension from Klein Watts back in the day. da 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 My God, was it a nightmare. You know, I've got 35 years in, in FS. I've been the head of risk. I've been a global head of fund management. I gave up. I gave up, man, you know, and if I gave up trying to do that, and in terms of giving up, I actually gave up trying to get the proper base data and understand what it meant. You know, I'd have to write a bloody letter or an email and say, oh, we get we have got eight weeks to reply to your thing, sir. And then they give you the wrong answer to something. And I'm just so busy. I, I gave up at the end and I spoke to chums of mine, some 60 somethings, again, who have been FDs of PLCs and all that kind of stuff they too had the same experience, you know? It's a mess, yeah. What does the ordinary Joe have if you've got lifetime professionals in FS can't sort that stuff out? So that's the sort of, the, you know, that's the sort of stickiest, uh, hardest end. But as you say, there's a whole spectrum along that, um, including things like mortgages. Now, we don't have time to go into a sort of one-by-one one around 200 countries in the world. But in terms of an overall vision, just talking about the future and the direction of travel, if we're not going to forecast November the 4th, uh, we'll get you on a much uh, longer term issue. How do you see open finance, open FS as a whole, progressing over over the next few years? I mean, the answer is going to be uneven in country to country. Do you think it's going to keep rolling ahead? Do you think it's going to stall? What does your crystal ball say about opening up all these different areas, which uh, implied by your mortgage one or my pension uh, anecdote, are forgetting all the techie stuff, uh, amazingly practical use to people's lives. I mean, if you can, you know, have some for the sake of argument fintech in two years time that just compares your mortgage rates every day and switches you painlessly and all that kind of stuff, you might save a whole fortune on your mortgage. In the same way, if I actually had all the data and all my information on the pension, maybe I could retire two years earlier or I'd have more certainty over the money. So there's huge benefits for people's lives, given that so much of our life is economic. You go buy your shopping at Waitrose, you know, you buy a pint of milk, you need money. Yeah, I guess starting with that, I think outside of your physical health, your financial health is the single biggest source of stress in your life. So I think this is something that is going to continue to be a big focus. And I do think that open banking is going to go at very different paces in different places. But I think that movement is well underway on a global scale. 
and actually will continue to grow for the next decade because there are lots of countries that are just at the very beginning of this journey. And I think part of it is stemming from this sort of baseline concept similar to privacy where everyone is starting to realize that you have a lot of data around you as an individual and you want to have rights associated with that data and your financial data is a huge part of that. So I think that core principle, right, which is how Australia is, is approaching it, you're going to see that principle start to proliferate where as a user, as a consumer, as a citizen, you should be able to access your financial data when and how you need it. And it's just going to take time for the implementations of that to come to market. But then when you think about why that's going to be the case, and this goes back to the sort of electricity internet point, at a world where everyone now, for the most part in most countries, has a smartphone in their pocket, that is going to become the primary mode that you access financial services. And the switching costs of moving to different services on a phone are as simple as downloading a new app. And in that world, access to data and lower switching costs are going to mean benefits to users. There's going to be more competition in the end services. And I think that alone is going to make pressure on governments to impose these type of open banking regulations to help support those ecosystems because they will ultimately, at scale, offer benefits to citizens in every country. And so I think, you know, it's going to take a long time. It's going to go at different speeds. But I do think that this is the beginning of a global movement that is going to continue for at least a decade to come. Yes, and one of the other um, uh, excellent American B2B backend companies we had on the show earlier in the year, Clay Wilkes, co-founder of Galileo Financial Technologies, who'd been acquired by SoFi for a billion or something. I understand more now that one because, uh, you know, I read that, oh, they've been acquired and, and SoFi want to use APIs, blah, blah, blah. But what I hadn't quite made was the, the higher level leap in terms of business case and the fact that actually the US is ahead in that way. So maybe just sort of just looking at the UK, narrowing it down from the whole world, which is quite a, a big topic. What kind of open things are going to be rolled out in, in what order do you think over the next two or three years? And, and before you get onto that, everybody has said open banking, but the way you're talking about it here makes it sound like actually what we have implemented in the UK is open banking assets and not open banking liabilities, i.e. NatWest has to share my assets, i.e. my current account information, but it doesn't need to, to share my banking liabilities, my, my borrowings or my mortgages. Is that, is that, so is that right? Is open banking actually a bit of a misnomer so far or rather half done? Because the asset side of the, my balance sheet has been done, but not my liability side. It's even more constrained than that. So because it came from the payment services directive, it only applies to payment accounts. So only an asset account that you can use to make a payment, that's the only thing covered under PSD2. So there's a whole wealth of your financial assets, and all of your liabilities that aren't covered in that. So in terms of where I think this is going in the UK, you're already starting to see savings account industry groups, pension industry groups start to think about how do we build an API spec to cover this type of access? It's taking a little bit more of a market-led approach. But I do think that the next iteration of what open banking is, is already well underway. I know this is a passionate topic for Imran himself as well, of how do we now extend this to cover new types of data that are still very useful to people like pensions. The reality is that with all the players in the ecosystem, it's going to take some time, both to align on what the spec should be, what data should be covered, but then also to get it implemented. There is a cost associated with that. There's a lot of different players in the ecosystem that have to partner together. So I think it's going to take some time, but that's what's coming next. I would say savings accounts and pensions are coming to the UK next. The other thing that's going to be really interesting to see is, you know, January 1st, the UK is, is leaving the EU. We could talk about smart divergence, which is the UK can then 
change the way they've implemented PSD2 or extend it to cover new types of data. And so there are discussions happening at that level with the treasury around what do we need to do to continue to make the UK a fintech hub now that we could change some of this regulation to fit our market in particular. And so I do think you're going to see some changes to the legislation start to come through as well. Excellent. Well, I like your note of optimism there. And um, (laughs) maybe it takes somebody from far away to think that the UK is capable of doing anything smart. (laughs) I voted for these bar stewards last year. And uh, to be honest, I'm a bit stumped for anything they've done this year that has been uh, that smart, other than actually get, to be fair to them, a proper negotiator on the case dealing with the EU, somebody who actually understands negotiations. That's been a smart thing. Everything else has been a catastrophe. But let's not get back to the sort of the, the curls and dodgy data and all that kind of stuff. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there. I hope that you're managing from a, a personal level to leverage all these open trends, even if it's hidden away behind apps and all that kind of stuff, because um, ultimately it isn't just about bits or techies or backend devs or marketers or salesmen. It is actually about empowering your life and making it better, as Keith has said, in, in one of the major dimensions. I'd also like to thank my partner for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. Theenlistedboard.com, resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. So we've mentioned Plaid once or twice. Keith, what would you like to wrap up on in terms of telling the countless listeners out there about Plaid that we haven't mentioned so far, or more particularly, which of them should be checking you out and whether you need more sex, drugs and rock and roll to make you an even greater company tomorrow than today? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've touched a lot. I think one thing that we haven't touched on as much is payments and open payments. Plaid also supports bank transfers via API via PIS. So I think that's an exciting thing for people to know about. If you want to do account funding or payments use cases using bank accounts, we also support that via API. But I think my key takeaway is, look, if you're building a fintech application or service or modernizing your existing fintech application or service, and you need to have consumers' bank accounts as part of that, come talk to us. You can find us at plaid.co.uk. I'm happy to chat and just offer some advice. We've helped Again, thousands of applications build their services over time. So we're always happy to keep the fintech ecosystem humming and always great to meet people and just hear their stories of what they're building as well. Great. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. It was certainly a more interesting topic than I'd appreciated. And, and thank you for your big picture explanation of the importance. I think I'm much more enthused about it. And in terms of what you guys are doing, I can see why your founders have been immensely successful in the years in going from sort of zero to uh, several billion uh, in a matter of a few years, a, a real seven, several billion, if it's actually paid through as a transaction as well, as opposed to unicorns on paper, which we see all over the place. And the podcast has been very lucky. I mean, one of the silver linings about lockdown is that we've had some amazingly good companies on recently, off the top of my head, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, in terms of high growth banking for, for techs, relationship driven, Signicat doing identity, and along with their partners doing it globally, and now Plaid doing the open banking, who are super blue chip and of the rare caliber, and I have not said that many times in the last six years plus, but I have said it a lot recently, that if you're a fintech, these are companies, Plaid is a company that it seems to me you absolutely should check out. They may or may not be the one for you, but you should absolutely check them out and find out what they're doing and more specifics to see whether they are the one for you. So I wish you every success in the future, Keith. And I think the one thing I haven't mentioned, you've got a very nice jumper on. <laughs> Look Norwegian. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Fall is here, so trying, trying to lean into it. It's been great. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com.
Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn. Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.